Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. This is Andy. This is part two of our J. Russell Smith piece. Don't come knocking if we're talking J. Rockin'. Yeah, it turns out a thousand miles isn't far enough to move away from you because I can still hear you, Andy. And technology. I went even further and I still don't feel safe. Anyway, I think uh, speaking of J. Rock, J. Russell, I think we should bring back this first initial middle name thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, as someone with a first name that begins with a, I like. I feel like it doesn't work. <laughs> like E. Thor Evans. Is your middle name Thor? I mean, it could be. Where did we leave off with our good friend J. Rock? J. Russell Smith for our listeners. Yes, J. Russell. J. Russell Smith. He was writing, what, kids' books with his wife or stealing kids' books from his wife and trying to shake up education and, like, bring reform? Yeah, that sounds about right. So he had done this whole economics thing, right? He went to school for economics, wanted to do geography, smashed them together because he was the original smasher instead of me, decided to... uh, (laughs) let's say, flip education on its head. And we haven't even gotten to talk about, like, tree crops. Which is, like, his thing. Which is his thing. So today we're going to talk about tree crops. We're going to talk trees? Yeah, we're going to talk trees while smoking them and talking about them. Finally. It's about time. So Smith had always had an interest in food systems. Now, that's largely because of his agrarian background. During the First World War, he was involved with a lot of local food projects in Pennsylvania about how to grow food, how to store food, all those fun things, canning and so on. In April of 1917, he was a part of a committee on agricultural service that was formed at the University of Pennsylvania. This was obviously before he left. Now, Smith was elected chairman in two weeks' time, had 300 boys working as farm volunteers in various states. He also began to advocate for things like national food conservation campaigns. And this was done through articles he was writing for Country Gentleman magazine, um, which we're going to be talking about in uh, next week. Like many, World War I radically altered the trajectory of Smith's life. Goddamn friends. It's always a friends. Now, Smith's background in geography and commerce made him, uh, you could say, a valuable person in the eyes of the state because, you know, geography is kind of important in war. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace requested a study from Smith on the impacts of global trade from the war. And in 1918, he requested a leave of absence from Wharton to become a special trade expert in the Bureau of Research of the War Trade Board in Washington, D.C., Okay, speak slower and explain further. (laughs) Okay, so during this leave, he wrote a book, and it was called The World's Food Resources. This was his research into, like, how much was war going to impact the stability of global food systems where food is being shipped across the world, right? He started to become, let's say, uneasy about the capacity of which food supply chains could be disrupted. Now, this isn't some like tin hat person. This is one of the world's chief economists who specializes in international trade through geography. Yeah, he's, he's, he's fucking J-Rock. We got it. Yeah, he's J-Rock. He, he <laughs> J-Rock, ca- baby. <laughs> he knows what he's talking about in this one, and that's unnerving, right? Knowing his interests as they had developed at this point in this idea of like human interdependence, He tried to frame this idea of food security and food resources within that framework. And he made the argument that basically without healthy social institutions, 
and without global cooperation, the famine would eventually reach everyone. Damn, okay, so what we're concerned about isn't a new thing. Not at all. His proposals to address this issue were interesting. We'll say visionary, but we'll also say not great. (laughs) For example, he suggested we should drain the swamps of the southeastern United States, as in his opinion, they were the last forms of cheap arable land, and that was one of the ways that we could increase arable farmlands to reduce our dependence on the rest of the world. Well, I'm glad we didn't do any of that. Right? In the same book, he also projected that China's future growth as a manufacturing center uh, would possibly surpass the United States, and that the USSR's future was reliant on its ability to increase and distribute what its grain belt could potentially produce. Okay, so he's kind of right about those two. Yeah, the grain belt holds up the USSR pants. Yeah. Right? His chief concerns weren't that we couldn't feed ourselves, uh, like what we end up seeing with his good friend Scott Nearing and the the back-to-the-land folks that surrounded him, but rather that if our global marketplace, that interdependence, began to collapse, food just couldn't get to where it needed to. And that's something we saw in COVID, right? It was from here where he began to bridge his interest in, like, tree crops with his interest in work and experiences in, like, systems design and economics and interdependence through trade and geography okay so it's really kind of interesting that like we're looking at agroforestry expanding today and a lot of the criticism around tree crops is that they're not like capable of scaling with efficiency when you know you think about a cornfield as it's like competitor but like the biggest advocate a century ago was literally an economist and maybe that says something both about like the crop and the economist advocating for them. And I mean, does it really matter if the system collapses anyway? Yeah, I mean, mm. if you like eating, but I, I like eating. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it should collapse. We got to save it. Yeah, I also like eating. Yes, we need corn forever, everyone, guys. We're we're gonna do a 180, and this podcast is just pro GMO monocrop corn. That's it. You know what? Feed me. <laughs> and I've I've always been. Always loved the Haber Bosch process. You've got a little signature. You got his uh, Haber's like signature, like over your bed. You kiss it every night, like Dexter yeah. from Dexter's Lab. Yeah, I feel it's actually you. over my bed, kind of like a mirror. <laughs> there you go. That way, you can first thing you see when you wake up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, J Rock, you know, we we talked about like the progressive politics of him and his colleagues at UPenn, right? While he didn't fully assign the term like socialist or communist to himself, he was very clearly like sympathetic to those movements. We don't have any real evidence of what his politics were, because if you read like even his own letters with like Scott Nearing, he talks a lot or there's a lot of letters that go to Scott Nearing about basically being like, just learn to shut up because it's going to cost you your career. And one of those people was J. Russell Smith being like, dude, you got to like tone it down a little bit. So we don't know what his politics were because like, he clearly understood the, the political influence on his career. I would guess he's probably more like a social democrat, like a, a Bernie Sanders type person who at the time would be like fairly centrist. But given like the Red Scare going on, you know, so on and so forth, in the words of our good friend Suavej Zizek. <laughs> yeah, that was a terrible so attempt so at 
and so on and so forth. So he he did argue that like big business needed to uh, needed reorganization. It needed more ethical practices. It needed scientific management, which was like this big thing coming from like a lot of the top down USSR models is scientific management, the application of science to business practices. And something he also thought was important was this idea of like de-emphasis on the profit motive. Uh, and that would bring about more social justice or in theory. He was particularly critical of the government's policy of what they call scarcity economics, which Smith believed caused hunger and you know, desire, want, and so on. People did not have enough in a land that had plenty of resources, plenty of potential, and by all definitions was rich. Okay, so he's got that dog in him. What dog? You know that Bernie Sanders? Well, you know what? I don't I don't I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. Dom, please do the you thing. You can't tell Dom to delete it. You cannot do that. It is not allowed. Thank you, Dom. Thank you. Here at the Raytheon Technologies Corporation, we believe children are the future, just not the ones on the other end of our products. Like our RIM-7 Sea Sparrow anti-aircraft missile system, the most environmentally friendly anti-aircraft missile produced anywhere today. We're mindful of our environmental legacy here, which is why today we're introducing a new line of pollinator-friendly Stinger missiles. This lightweight, portable system includes a native wildflower mix that scatters upon impact. You're welcome, bees. Raytheon. Pack a punch, plant a bunch. Bernie's get it, like the dog. He's a dog who's a no, who's a Democrat. We all got it. We all got it. Honestly, if it weren't you, I think I would have found it funny. Wow, just throwing heat. I don't know if I'm ever going to recover from any of this. You know who else Smith didn't think was going to recover? The American capitalist empire. If it didn't rethink Oof. the relations between labor and capital. You know what? I, I'll give that a B transition. I'll take it. So this was actually the theme of his book, The Devil of the Machine Age. The quote-unquote devil, Smith said, was this idea of scarcity in order to keep prices high, on which basically, in his opinion, the whole world economic structure was being built. And it was because of this he thought that the country was going to go from bad to worse in the direction of things like poverty, inequality, oppression, government control, societal disruption, war, so on and so forth. Okay, what year was he talking about specifically? <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. You could never think that's happening today. This sounds like forever ago. So while he was a strong advocate for government intervention, he was also highly critical of the choices that the New Deal made. He complained that many of them were very temporary fixes. They didn't deal with structural issues. And we're going to be talking about this not next week, but like the next three or four weeks after that, how the New Deal played out and its role in the development of permanent agriculture. But things like limited production goals, price fixing, wage stabilization, federal subsidies, crops being kept out of the market for that forced scarcity that he was so critical of, government payments for failure to produce, pump priming, and more and more things like this that didn't ever address the actual issues. He described these as a, in his words, succession of idiocies perpetrated by basically like rich government people and then rich farmers, while most of the farm labor didn't really see much of the benefits. Now, what Smith instead advocated for was an economy of abundance in which the country and the world would stabilize itself because it would be able to maximize the utility of the resources which it could provide, 
making everyone better off and allowing us not to destroy the planet. Basically, he argued that like a scarcity system was designed where everybody is trying to get better off at the expense of everybody else. And he thought the only way to deal with that was to create a more ethical, not profit driven system. Okay, so he's really operating on like the good vibes policy. Very Bernice. Really? You too, Matt? Wow, I like and just want to see like cute little Bernice puppy and mittens and overcoat. No, it sounds creepy. I don't like it. Okay. Whatever. You don't have cool mittens. Cool mittens. What did you know about it? He lives in Georgia. He doesn't need mittens, Matt. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Now, much like Bernie, he did propose a lot of similar ideas. So he he advocated for like consumer cooperatives, producer cooperatives, consumer organizations for protection, private businesses run for a regulated fair profit. How you get there, I don't know, but that's what he wants. Government operation of some enterprises such as public utilities and nonprofit private foundations. So the all of the above approach that we see a lot from like the left of center politics, right? While his remedies might seem kind of over-idealized, at the time and even till fairly recently, the economic foundation of his argument was has been considered like fundamentally sound. Like this this makes economic sense. It's not some radical, like only left-leaning person would say this makes sense. He believed fundamentally that what we're getting to is a point where the American businessman had to face a choice. They could either make an economy of abundance with a reasonable profit system, and that being based on like an ethical social order, or eventually they were going to have to hand over all the business to the government because someone would come out with the choppy choppy. Okay. I think the reason he could think this was realistic is that it was becoming obvious to the labor force how much power they had. And the idea that they would lose that, you know, influence seemed kind of insane. And yet here we are. Yet here we are indeed. As the uh, chairman of the subcommittee of the All Friends Conference of 1935, he oversaw writing a pamphlet talking just about this called Methods of Achieving Economic Justice. Okay, I don't mean to butt in again, but this this dude was what chairman of like a million projects. Yeah, he he uh, he was a busy man, much like our boy Liberty. It's it's the two initial thing, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> this pamphlet he he advocates for economic internationalism, a decent minimum standard of living, self help cooperatives, a decrease in federal regulation, and a weakening of the power of the rich through stricter antitrust laws and increased taxation. Again, could basically run for like left-leaning Democrat today. Now, Smith and the other contributors maintain that big business needed reorganization in the form of more ethical practices. Again, that scientific management and you know all the things that he continues to advocate for. Otherwise, basically, things are going to fall apart. And this was tied to his concerns about food security and food systems as a whole. He believed that without dealing with that power dynamic of the rich and these businesses making so much money... What he saw when he traveled to the Soviet Union in the early 1920s, which if you don't know, there was a huge famine in the Soviet Union, he had gone over with Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, and he was basically horrified and was like, this is going to happen here unless something changes. Okay, so you're talking about the Holodomor. So actually, that was that was another event. The one he went over to the USSR was during 1921. At least that's based on what I was able to find. This was not some at the time like the famines going on in Western USSR didn't have the politicization that it does today. 
so like it wasn't really well documented. But sometime in the early 20s, he went over. And if he went over 1921, which is where I think he went, that'd be like, and it would be another year or two before a whole lot of more. So we're not getting canceled for this one. No, not yet, at least. But all of this caused J-Rock to think like extensively about this idea of like the future of food systems, right? I don't think anything changes your mind, like seeing a bunch of starving people to be like, huh, I hope this doesn't happen to me and the people I care about. And while he'd always cared about like trees and their role in ecosystems, when he when he was over in Europe on his way to the USSR and then came back, he did see a lot of those old traditional land management practices taking place. You know, the things we've talked about in this, on this show, the Iberian Peninsula with the sheep grazing, the olive vineyards in Italy, as we'll see with Russell Lord, the French farms that were still subsistence farms that had been the same as they were for hundreds of years. And then coming back and then traveling across the United States in the 1920s, it became pretty obvious, like the, the stark differences. And uh, it's no surprise that in 1929, after all this traveling, he wrote Tree Crops, which is probably the reason why you're listening to this podcast. Okay, so finally made it to Tree Crops. With J-Rock and the tree crops. He, he's the tree pops. Not bad. Not bad. Not loving this. It starts with liking one of my dad jokes. Now he's making his own. This is how it begins. It's like finding out you're being brought into a cult when you've already shaved your head and you, you, know, you sold all your worldly possessions. Be like us, Elliot. One of us. One of us. One of us. Us. For legal purposes, this is not a cult. Ooh. Dom's like the voice in The Wizard of Oz who's secretly in charge of everything. Everyone thinks it's me, but I'm just mm -hmm. like a lovable voice. Yeah, it's definitely not loved. Wow, rude. I know it's not. <laughs> You're an AI-generated voice. AI, you can't prove I exist. You have a voice for a <laughs> podcast, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you have yeah. a face for a podcast, too. Ayo. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I will, I will take all of the compliments you give me. Thank you all. That wasn't a compliment. I, I heard compliments and I'm, I'm ex accepting them begrudgingly, but I will take them. Uh, so, all right. So tree crops, it, this book wasn't just a book that sprung from his observations on the road in 1900 before he got involved with like all these things we've been talking about. He actually bought 130 acres in Sunny Ridge to experiment with the concept of growing trees and tree crops for food. The land had already been occupied by uh, a, a pretty good landscape. It had a number of black walnuts and chestnuts, and uh, it allowed him to experiment and have some space to plant new improved varieties as they were discovered or rediscovered. And over the 51 years in which he owned the land, the farm expanded to over 2,000 acres with over 100 documented varieties of nuts and other species. His breeding work was predicated on finding the best trees that were not named through competitions with various organizations, getting his friends jobs with the government so that they could help him do the things he wanted to do, like John Hershey, who we're talking about next week. And basically leveraging every tool that was at his disposal to get the best trees, the trees with the best masts, the thinnest shells, the sweetest nuts, the sweetest fruits, the biggest fruits, the most cold hardy fruits, basically anything that he thought was going to make tree crops more palatable to people. And all this work was really predicated on 
the indigenous breeding work of trees in this country that otherwise was being lost to suburbanization and continues to be lost. So Smith did this by running contests and basically paying people who may have had crops that otherwise wouldn't be available or trees that otherwise were not available for like buying through a nursery or anything like that. And then he he would like leverage his access to like agricultural departments at colleges because he was this big name economist to publicize these contests. And he would spend the money to run ads in newspapers and farm journals and basically anywhere. Okay, so on that last bit, that's where you got the idea for the borough contest? Yeah, I'm not that smart and creative. Like, what were the results of that competition? I tell you, but as of this recording, we haven't actually gotten a final winner. But maybe our commercial does. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. So these new competitions drew legitimate interest, and over the course of 20 years, he was able to collect much of the scion wood and seeds for many of the cultivars that we have today in the tree crop space. Between him and John Hershey, we can basically say that was where a good chunk of the now-named varieties came from. So basically, like he single-handedly, alongside Hershey, protected like a lot of genetics that would have otherwise been probably lost to history. And these are not including the ones that have since been lost again because of developers turning John Hershey's tree farm into suburbs. Yes, there's a lot of overlap, but there's definitely a lot of stuff that went to Smith that didn't go to Hershey. And this is, again, another reason why we need to save as much as we can. A lot of these protections of finding them and you know propagating them are temporary if it doesn't keep going on, right? Yeah, sure. Freedom. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. Now, Smith wasn't just into walnuts and hickories. He was into honey locusts, pecans, chestnuts, pawpaws, mulberries, persimmons, and lots more of weird stuff that were non-natives. But he, he did have a good chunk of natives that he was particularly interested in. But being the economist that he was, it was super important to him to show that, like, these could be profitable crops. So he tried to run his farm like a business, not a hobby thing that he could just afford to do. And uh, he actually became a recognized commercial breeder. He started selling grafts at scale, lines of trees at scale, and he followed his own advice. He was grazing livestock below his trees and um, really applied his theories to practice. Okay, so he was putting his money where his mouth was, sort of, right? Pretty important, especially if you're like trying to encourage specific practices that's like hey come seeing it being done like right here right now it's like why participatory research and like field days are so important now in agricultural extension 
and get all these ideas around practice, but ultimately we're like we're a species that likes to copy, you know, what each other's doing. Exactly. Like he he tried to have that like model farm, right? One of the areas that I think many people that are listening to, they know his cultivars and varieties, but he was also really passionate about the American chestnut. And he actually worked alongside the U.S. government to try to breed, crossbreed the American chestnut with Chinese and English chestnut genetics. Okay, so Jay Rockwood, fed boy. <laughs> Gotta stay out of prison. Uh, so he, he began to experiment with uh, the original stand on his farm. By around 1912, he'd had a large orchard of American and English chestnuts. It was that same year that chestnut blight struck Virginia. To try to control the blight, the experiment station at Beltville, Maryland, made arrangements with Smith to use his orchard as an experimental center for sprays. The work was unsuccessful, but... I mean, isn't that obvious? <laughs> Obviously, Andy. Jesus Christ, we're not idiots. Okay, well, I was trying to be clear. <laughs> that we're clearly idiots? Yes, that is it, Matt. You got me. I rescind my comment about the work being unsuccessful. Everyone knew that, so I, I guess I just don't need to say it. I mean, uh, I didn't know. Okay, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Now, while chestnuts were one of his primary passions, it was really the honey honey locust that was his love. So, like, his bottom bitch. <laughs> That's one way to say it. Sure. So, we've talked about the honey locust a few times, specifically two years ago in an interview with Dr. Robert Warren. I think it's episode like 60th-ish, if you're interested. It was a plant that was managed and propagated by indigenous folks, specifically the Cherokee, who brought it quite outside of its quote-unquote natural range. While we believe it was used for sugar by the Cherokee, it also is used today through tree crop people as a, a high-quality animal feed. Now, for context, the select varieties that Smith's contest found had sugar content equal to the best sugar beets, and better than the yields of the richest crops of sugarcane, while being a perennial tree crop, which needed no real management. Isn't there evidence of honey locust beer? Did you talk about that? So we do know it was fermented on some level. I don't know of anyone that's replicated it with any good success. I've heard that from a number of sources. Whether or not they all came from the same person is up for debate. But it it does have potential to be a beer. There's some concerns about specific chemicals in the pods, although unlike conventional medicine, science tends to err on the side of conservative usage of natural chemicals. So it could be one of those things that they say could have some dangerous chemicals, but like unless you're drinking five gallons of honey locust beer a day, it's not a big deal. Damn it, there goes my plans. I know, right? So it's probably fine. Do your research. Check the most recent edu uh, resources out there, so on and so forth. That's our little disclaimer on that. Now go drink five gallons of honey locust beer. Guilt-free. Yeah, Guilt-free. Now, the point of all this was to show like how these crops could work in a profitable system. And this meant like alley cropping, multi-layer cropping, silvopasture, no plow, multi-species grazing, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, much of which we have covered in the last four years. So listeners, go check out everything we've done in the last four years. If you just spent eight hours a day listening to us in a month, you'll have listened to all of our content. And see, so I feel like eight hours a day is not, you know, I feel like you could do more than that. You could <laughs> Can do we 12. Pump those numbers up? Yeah, I think you could do 12. Yeah, and I mean, then if you really feel like you forgot it all, you can go jump on our Substack that has, I think, like 970 pages of content. 
So, you know, just really make sure it's all soaked in there. Mm-hmm. It's not a cult. Not a cult. Not, not a cult. All. It's not. TM. His farm was so successful at like showcasing what land management could look like. It was actually used as an example by the Soil Conservation Service to showcase what restoration should look like. So like that that's a pretty good like proof of concept, right? That like the government's like, hey, farm like this guy. He also leveraged his extensive writing and educational background, which is showcased in tree crops. The interesting thing about his book, if you haven't read it, is that he doesn't try to present crops as like novelties, but rather as substitutions for crops that people are already familiar with. So he talks about like chestnuts as like tree corn, honey locust as like a stock food with the potential to be a perennial sugar crop, and so on. It wasn't about like, hey, we found this thing that you can only use like a little bit of in a recipe. It was like, how do we use this as a staple crop so that we can make a meaningful change to our diets? Early on in the book, Tree Crops, he talks about this idea of institutes of mountain agriculture. And the idea was basically that these trees could grow where crops couldn't. So that was the first place to focus our research and how to grow them, breed them, uh, and kind of where their place was on the farm was how do we leverage the worst parts of the farm, the sloped land, the all that good stuff. And basically the idea was that we had to have these like regionally specific institutes, which would exist to collect the best cultivars of native crops. And they could be maintained by like a mix of government philanthropy or even private businesses. Okay. So Jay Russell had all these ideas and he wanted the government to fund him and his friends to, to try it out. I mean, that's the dream. And he kind of did it with the, with the TVA and John Hershey, which we're going to talk about next week. So I'm looking forward to that because it's going to be the most in-depth dive on John Hershey that's ever existed. So It's on the list, but it's close. It's, it's, it's been on the list. It's going through the list. It is in transition. Now, jumping forward a few decades later, 1953, speaking of Hershey, John uh, Smith revised his version of the book. And in it, he um, first he criticizes the government's abandonment of permanent agriculture, because basically after World War II, they were like, fuck that. You can go listen to the corn episode where we kind of talk about that a little bit. We're going to be talking about it in much more detail in a couple of weeks. But it also was an opportunity for Smith to show that he was cautiously optimistic about how permanent agriculture was gaining momentum, despite the government's support. So it's like America's allergic to making things better. As American as apple pie. Is that even American? Uh, it, it is not American. Huh. Don't the Dutch do it? <laughs> the Dutch do it better. We do it worse. <laughs> you know, I've always said that. Yeah, just just look at their ovens. You ever seen an American oven? No, you haven't. Only a Dutch oven. That's what I'm saying. Isn't that the Dutch apple pie? It's like done in a thing. It is, and it's delicious. Man. Okay, so while Smith was critical of the Roosevelt administration and its handling of food production, he was also like recognized by the administration and its team. And despite his criticism of decisions that Roosevelt was making, Roosevelt still offered Smith the role of Secretary of Agriculture under his administration, which Smith declined, unsurprisingly. Brutal. Although he, he should have really taken it. Despite this rejection, his farm and his writing became so significant that 
again, his writing, was his farm was used as a model for a lot of the things that were being done. Arthur E. Morgan was a huge fan of Smith's work and used that as a model for the TVA. And Arthur Morgan wanted Smith to lead the TVA's experimental crop nursery, which was just basically breeding, paying him to do the thing he was doing anyway. Um, and Smith was like, no, nah, I'm good, but I know a guy. And uh, that's how John Hershey ended up leading the experimental crop farm at the TVA. Okay, so he basically put in like puppet player, basically, so you could tell the government what to do without getting his hands dirty. I mean, with the TVA, yeah, he was basically like, listen, if you want the things that I can do, I know a guy, take him. And then him and Hershey would basically trade genetics that they would get a hold of, or they'd be like, hey... I'm looking for this thing. You should run a contest on it. And they were just basically like tag team trying to find these genetics. Dream team. Dream team. Very enterprising. Right. Now, Smith's interests weren't just focused on this idea of like tree crop breeding for future food prospects, but also he, as a geographer, uh, he understood the value of trees for like conservation purposes. As we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, I keep saying that, we're going to talk about like the flooding that was happening during like the, the late 20s and early 30s. There was massive wetlands and riparian zone destruction across basically the whole southern half of the United States. And he was a huge advocate of like, we have to replant trees all across these areas. And he even called like the destruction of the Rio Grande as, in quote, one of the most perfect examples of regional suicide to be found anywhere in the world. I mean, I joke around and I troll the United States, but it's just not even fun anymore. <laughs> it's just fucking brutal. It never was fun. It's called using comedy to mask trauma. Yeah. America is full of trauma. Anyway. Now, <laughs> sad face. Now with our boy Smith, uh, given his like hyper fixation on interconnectedness, he refused to like work in a vacuum. So like we've talked about the fact that he collaborated a lot with John Hershey. He was always looking to collaborate with other folks. And one of those particular groups was the NNGA, Northern Nut Growers Association, aka Norm's Nuts Growing Association, which was particularly active until about the 1950s when it started to slow down. This unique society was founded in 1910 to, in quote, promote interest in nut producing plants, their products, and their culture. Smith joined the group in 1913, and basically he wanted to learn methods that other people had figured out. So one thing he wanted to get better at was grafting walnuts. By 1916, he was elected president. Man. So he didn't sleep. Just like Liberty High Bailey. He's just up and about just doing stuff all the time. 24-7. Maybe this is just like how much stuff people got done when they didn't spend four to eight hours every day on Instagram and watching TV. That makes sense. Less screens. It's like you get 25% more of your day. It's like that Wojak meme of the average millennial versus the Chad Silent Generationer. What are they called? Not important. You know what I mean. No, you got it. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't think any of us ever know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is an intervention, buddy. No, I need my memes, Matt. That's all I have left. He's not even acknowledging he has a problem. Man, I know it's hard, but you're just too online, Andy. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, I have not moved into a cabin in Montana yet. All right, so the proceedings of those meetings, which are available for free on Amazon, by the way, tell a lot of what was what Smith was doing at Sunny Ridge. So you can literally pull these things off Amazon, do a little word finder, look for Smith, 
Russell, JR, any of those. J-Rock. J-Rock, as he was well known at the time. Mm-hmm. And they, they give us a little insight into like what he was doing and the logic behind that work. So, for example, in like the 1946 edition, Smith states that they need to, in quote, urge the members to run local contests for good nuts. It may bring members, if not mutt, and you may find some new neighbors you didn't know about, end quote. In uh, a few years later, he describes the butternick pecan, which he had planted decades prior and had described it as a non-fruiter. Only in 1951, when digging them up and selling his farm, he had noticed that the ones he had given to a neighbor were producing high-quality pecans with consistent crops. Smith was also interested in the American Genetics Association, which was the organization founded by Willett Hayes, the guy who happened, who I mentioned like 10 minutes ago, had encouraged Smith to work with Honey Locusts. He occasionally wrote for their publication, the Journal of Heredity, and he ran many of the nut contests that he did with them. I mean, what can you say about a man other than he loved a good nut competition? Yep, didn't think I'd hear that sentence today. We got big nuts, small nuts. Yep, normal Norm is back. Oh, God. There he is. Resurrected. Hydra kids, Norm, <laughs> Norm has returned. He's been yeah. resurrected. Why does he look like Freddy Krueger? <laughs> you say nuts three times, he comes back to life. <laughs> so <laughs> later in his life uh smith becomes very active in the organization friends of the land founded by russell lord uh which again we'll be talking about in like six weeks and this centered around the idea of like soil and water conservation in fact the 1953 edition of tree crops which also has a map of john hershey's farm and is kind of like if you've ever seen that map of john hershey's farm and where the trees were and like i think actually bill mollison used it in one of the permaculture books as like an example of a temperate forest mm-hmm. or i don't think he used it actually but i think he like basically stole it and changed a couple things on it because permaculture obviously that all came from that edition of tree crops and that was sponsored by the friends of the land it's like this weird niche club of nerds that accidentally stumbled into the power of the world's biggest country's agricultural industry. And yeah, that's kind of what actually happened, and we're going to talk about that in a lot of detail next week. Yeah, and these guys just stayed up with amphetamines and stimulants and all hung out and talked to each other across the country before the internet, which is just fascinating. Writing letters. It's fascinating. Yeah. In 1956, a decade before his death, Smith was awarded the Culm Geographical Medal for his work in geography, conservation, and college course development. Because remember, that's what we talked about before we got into the tree crops, and he was kind of a big deal in that space. Despite his reputation around tree crops, that is the reason why everyone's listening to this, he's considered one of the most influential geographers in American history, which like NBD... You know, it's kind of like Kropotkin, like everyone knows Kropotkin as like this anarchist. The bread guy. But he was actually like an up there top five with Darwin. Mm-hmm. And he also happened to do this other thing. Like he, it wasn't like he was like a middle of the road, like evolutionary scientist. He was like top dog, kind of like. <laughs> he had that dog <laughs> in him. He had that. He did not have that Bernese dog in him. But Smith was like that. He he was that big in geography and education. And like I, I really want to make a point of like that the capacity of him to do these multiple things very well at once. And while his like influence on agriculture is important and worth exploring, which is why we're doing this, he was also important for this idea of his capacity to create change and influence public narrative, despite being largely self-taught in agriculture, in conservation, in genetics, and even to an extent in geography, right? Like there was no program, so he just kind of figured it out. 
Now, despite his self-made character, his lived experiences taught him about like cooperation and interdependence and how these were crucial parts of his success, and not just personally, but also like for the country and the planet as a whole, right? This really underscores all of his work, the way he looked at tree crops, the way he looked at how he'd support tree crops and our future agriculture system. How can we leverage our capacity as humans to like make a more equitable world? And that's what kind of drove him till the end. And he died in uh, February of 1966 at the age of 92. Man, and just on top of all of that, nuts will make you live forever, apparently. Well, at least until 92. I mean, I'm going to eat nuts all the time if that's true. Why would you want to? I want to be the Highlander. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to know how fucked shit is going to be in 2080. Like, if I hit like 70 and it, things go the way I expect, I'm just. I'm gonna have like fucking 60 cartons of cigarettes that I'm just gonna chain smoke <laughs> through until I'm dead. Man, that is bleak. It is death. Death by fucking. I don't know. What do you? <laughs> what cigarettes do you smoke? Death by Newports. Death by Newports. Uh, I, I will smoke just Newports just so I can say death by Newports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you live by Newports, you die by Newports. I can think of worse ways to go. So I do want to note that while this piece, these two episodes have been pretty expansive, there's still a ton of non-digitized records of Smith's at the J. Russell Smith Archive in Pennsylvania. And of course, the NNGA records have tons of good stuff. And although I'm sure they've all been skimmed and I've tried to go through as much as I could as well, there's probably still some stuff out there that needs to be traced to. And there's probably some cool shit that no one has figured out yet or found yet. The thing that we haven't really talked about is like, or I guess we don't really talk about is, well, Smith was selling all these trees around the the country. So where are they now, the ones that got sold? They're still on the landscape. We need to go find them. How do we figure out which trees in someone's backyard came from J. Russell Smith's farm, right? Mm. So if we can't find certain genetics, that's one good place to look, but we need to be able to find them, and we have to know what we're looking for. And people need to be aware of it, and that's kind of what we're doing right now, right? Hey, people, check your trees. Check your trees. And this, I think, points to like, People that want to get involved in tree crops and do cool stuff, like the people that are like, I don't have any land, how do I get involved? Here, this is a really good place to start, is let's try to find some of these lost cultivars. The NNGA is a great resource to connect with folks and find where like legwork needs to be done in your area. NAFEX, which is the North American Fruit Explorers, they can help you out. They do, again, part of the name is explorers. They go out and try to find stuff. Basically, just go hook up with other nut lovers. Yeah, or fruits, whatever. You, you Cro- know, whatever you want to do. Cross your nuts. If you're nuts about fruits and fruity about nuts, join both. And I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that up. If uh, you love all of this and you just can't get enough of us, can't get enough of this content, go hop on Patreon. John Hershey will be uh, up there probably when this comes out. So check that out. John Hershey. Not the chocolate Hershey. American food forest guy. That was my first question. Unrelated. Well, probably related, but unrelated in material in ways. Way. I'm still going to ask next week. Is that okay. what we're doing next week? It is what we're doing next I'm week. I'm still going to ask next week. You oh, ask. Yeah. J-Rock was friends with him, not the Her- not the chocolate Hershey. So until then, thanks for listening. Go check out the Substack if you want to read this because we meandered too much or you want to get sources. 
and uh, we'll be back soon. So go plant a tree or two. Do it. Yeah, eat your nuts. Live forever. Live forever. Live to 92. Elliot is the Highlander. I'll be the Highlander if you live forever, so just remember that. I am forever. I am not forever. Be like us, Elliot.